Hi, this is Wendy, and welcome to season two of Overexposed. It's so crazy to even say that out loud. For those of you who listened to our awesome guests in season one, thank you and welcome back. And for those of you who are new here, we're so glad to have you join us. To kick things off, we have Evgeny Chabotarov joining me. Ev is currently the Chief Growth Officer at Skylum and had previously founded one of the world's biggest, most renowned photography communities, 500px. He is also a very talented, established photographer who is, in fact, one of our heroes. We are so lucky to have Ev sit down and chat with us today on this episode. Ev and I met a couple of months ago while working on some projects that Skylum and Pexels are collaborating on. One of them is the From the Archive Photo Challenge. You don't want to miss this because we're giving away a brand new Fujifilm X100B camera to the winner. And as an additional treat, Skylum is providing a special 60-day trial just for our Pexels fam. Each download includes a Pexels bundle of custom presets and textures by us. Head over to the challenge page at pexels.com to enter this challenge and check out some of our other ones as well. So now that we've gotten the shameless promo out of the way, I'm so excited to dive into this episode. Hey Ev, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you, Wendy? Not too bad, thank you. So we met a couple of months ago when we were both in Toronto and working on some projects that we were collaborating on. And as of recently, we've had to move our coffee meetings to the World Wide Web. Every time we meet, I think you end up showing me something new, like how do you snap camera to scare my teammates on Zoom meetings. So to start off, I wanted to get your philosophy around changing technology, now that some of the recent trends are Zoom backgrounds, now that everyone's staying at home, and webcam shoots to replace the fact that people can't go outside and shoot with their friends anymore. Well, of course I am endured at heart, so anything that's um, a new and exciting, I try to uh, try it myself, basically. And sometimes some of the technologies are actually a bit too advanced for me. So to be honest, like TikTok is still beyond my uh, capacity to understand and engage with, because uh, I feel like it takes a lot of time to actually become, let's say, professional creator on TikTok. Um, but for other geeky stuff, I'm all in, uh, it relates to photography. It relates to trying like different things for, uh, attachments for iPhone, um, different accessories. Um, I don't necessarily like to own them, but I love to explore and figure out how they work and how they can be part of my, uh, you know, maybe some of this become part of my routine or part of my. Uh, uh, work set or workflow that I use and things like, you know, snap camera that I showed you before that allows you to have uh, basically the same snapshot filters in zoom. Uh, that was very popular with our team as we were going into zoom meetings and I would be the one with like silly faces and stuff like this. Um, that is fun, especially when nobody's using that at first. So kind of like being a, a trendsetter is always a nice feeling. Yeah, and it's cool that those things, um, I don't know if they were actually released before, but um, especially now gaining popularity, it kind of adds more of a human aspect to people. Like the CEO of McDonald's is like sitting in his living room in his pajamas. So um, having these sort of like little things, even though they're not formal, um, I think is essential in times like these. We have to rely on technology, even though we're social beings. Yeah, I think it's been most interesting to see how stars or newscasts uh, professionals how their homes look like so that's been pretty unusual but then I found out that if you look at a lot of professionals they usually have a bookshelf behind them and you can buy a background that is a bookshelf <laughs> like I don't have uh, a big bookshelf that I can see it, uh, in front or behind uh, like in front or behind depending on the camera uh, so maybe getting a background that mimics that uh, will make it a more professional setting yeah, and it's funny because people would have these backgrounds. I remember someone from our team had uh, like a bookcase background, like you mentioned, and then their partner came in to like drop off a coffee or something. And usually where there's a door, it's covered by the background. So it looked like just someone appearing from the middle of a bookcase. It's funny seeing these like little glitches in technology as well, which further humanizes people. And For sure. I think the barriers have been lowered for sure. 
So most of the world, I think, know you as someone in the entrepreneurial and tech space. I want to kind of start from the beginning, and I'm interested in exploring more of the creative side and how that kind of came to be. You weren't born in Canada. No, I was born in Moscow, Russia. And I was just curious how it was like growing up there. Like, did the landscape of your upbringing encourage creativity at all? <laughs> that's that's a fun question. Uh, I would say, well, I got my first camera um, about a year before I moved to Canada. And I was 14 or 15 at a time. Um, I actually wrote the story a couple of times, uh, but the... Uh, you know, I was saving money for this camera. I really wanted it. I don't know. I didn't know why, uh, but I just thought that, hey, it's going to be cool to photograph. And that was the one of the first digital cameras that you could buy for normal uh, amount of money. Um, so it took me about a year to get um, the cash with, um, you know, like helping my parents and getting paid for, for homework and stuff like this. Uh, I didn't have much money on my own. And, you know, once I got the cash and bought the camera, I was photographing everything that I could, you know, get my hands on, uh, flowers and streets and indoors and, you know, animals and cats and dogs and all of, all of that. Um, and, you know, I mean, Moscow um, is, is very pretty photographically. But for me, it's a very hard place to photograph because I kind of know it so well. It's very hard for me to uh, be a photographer that can forget all these uh, childhood experience and see Moscow differently, for example. Um, so that's why I actually don't take a lot of photos whenever I go back to Moscow. And it's mostly just kind of like, you know, uh, no photo zone for me. And at what age did you uh, come to Canada? Um, so at 16, I moved to Canada with my family. Um, old enough to make my own decisions, but not old enough to actually move by myself. So it was a family decision to move. And, um, you know, the first day we arrived in Toronto, um, I was walking around downtown and we, we, we lived in downtown temporarily while we were looking for a permanent place. And I was walking around all of the skyscrapers. Um, and that was really fascinating. I vividly remember that feeling of being fascinated by tall buildings that you wouldn't see in Moscow. Um, and even in my travels, I usually wouldn't go to places with a lot of, uh, like skyscrapers or tall buildings. And, uh, that is something that stayed with me until today. Even today I would go, you know, uh, in down core downtown of Toronto and be fascinated by the oldest buildings and take a lot of photos, even if it's just mm -hmm. my, uh, phone. So, and then you ended up staying in, I guess, downtown Toronto when you went to university as well. And what made you decide to choose your program? And I believe you went to Ryerson for the finance. Indeed. Was that a personal decision to go into something technical? Well, uh, it, it's, it's, a fun, it's, a, it's a fun story. When I moved to Canada, I was looking at different programs that were offering. And the difference between uh, how education is structured in Russia, for example, versus Canada is very striking. Because in Russia, you get just like five or six different professions. Uh, I'm, you know, um, of course, there's more, but kind of like there's basics. You just go and do one thing or the other thing. But in at Ryerson, or I first actually went to Humber College, you would go and open the program and there's like, you can become a hospitality manager or a manager of golf courses. And I'm like, this is insane. How specialized can you go? And so because it was overwhelming and because I actually been at university in Moscow just before I left, um, I went with the similar program and started with finance because I felt like it's a kind of like a safe uh, choice. It's a choice where you can figure out what to do next. But uh, as I was getting started, I knew that um, finance itself or like um, basically a finance itself would not interest me when I graduate. 
picking up the camera when you were younger, um, when you end up going to Ryerson and kind of starting to be more career focused and thinking about what you want to do in the future, did you still have your uh, creative passion on the side or did you kind of put the camera down for a little while? Well, at university, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, But luckily for me, I was very bored at accounting lectures and many, many other lectures. So what I was doing, I was actually drawing uh, HTML, like the code for making websites on a page, because at that time I didn't have my computer and I would be just like writing this code by hand and then going home and um, trying to put it together into some pages. And when I got my first laptop that I uh, worked for quite a bit, it was a real achievement for me at the time, um, I started doing more stuff. And that's how basically Fire MTX came to be, out of me being bored on accounting lectures. Yeah, and I read from the blog that we, so we wrote a blog about you um, on our Pexel stories as one of our heroes. And I read that when you first got your a film camera back, that uh, three of your photos got published. And at the same time, when you're at, you're at Ryerson studying business and thinking about how 500px came from just a side hobby. So what made you decide to work on 500px rather than pursuing your own photography journey? Good question. Um, I wish I know the I wish I knew the answer to that, uh, but w- what what happened is um, I, I was doing both at the time. I was um, a freelancing and making, uh, writing articles and making photos for a couple of magazines, uh, and they would be about like fashion and some art stuff. So I'd be going to uh, museums in Toronto and taking pictures of that and kind of like putting this together and some architecture stuff. But in the end, uh, what I saw is that with Fern PX, um, I, uh, I could have helped thousands of people instead of just myself with my photography. And I think that was the defining moment because, um, you know, I mean, uh, Fern PX grew to be something big and, uh, I, I realized that maybe, I, I mean, I'm passionate about photography, but maybe I'm not willing to take it all the way in because um, I've seen people for whom, you know, if it's a full-time photography gig, it becomes less of an exciting thing. It becomes more like just a regular career like anything else. And part of me wanted to keep this excitement going. So um, while building Fire PX uh, back in the day, it allowed me to keep it as a hobby and, uh, you know, evolve my photography a little bit through travel and through working with people and not treat it as something that I had to do every day in the morning. Uh, and um, frankly, with, with Fire PX, um, I didn't know what else to do. So it's just, it was a very natural choice of just kind of like keep, keep doing what I was doing because I couldn't imagine myself going either into photography full time or into like banking with my finance degree full time. So then you were able to kind of like maybe unconsciously then, but find like a happy medium through 500px when you can um, like still explore your creative side, but also maintain like technical uh, such business side of things. Uh, so could you tell me a little bit more, when you started 500px, um, what was the very first product? Like now it ended up growing to a community of millions of people, but what was the first product that you had created for it? Well, the very first thing was created in uh, on February 18th, uh, 2004. That's a very long time ago. And it was a community uh, on a platform called LiveJournal. Uh, and it was based there because my coding skills were not enough to actually make a, a real website. So I just used the platform to adjust and modify it to what I wanted it to be. And that was just a place where people would share their photos uh, with a twist. And the twist was that there were rules in place. So you couldn't upload just anything. You actually have to upload them to specific rules. One of the rules is that the photos have to be Fire MPX wide. So they have to be like a specific size. 
And uh, a set of people, myself included, I recruited uh, four other um, people who taste I trust to be like moderators. So they would like a, a panel of judges to look at the photos and basically say if this photo deserves to be on FerrantPX or not. So that caused a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, excitement, but also a lot of hate, because when so someone's photo got rejected, they thought it's, it's our fault and we're bad and uh, we cannot see their art correctly. Uh, but at the same time, that would lead to a lot of excitement when um, people would be finally accepted. So it was like an, a badge of honor uh, or, you know, and um, that would drove a lot of initial interest in front PX actually being sort of like exclusive in air quotes uh, place to be. That's interesting that you mentioned. Um, I was just about to ask too how 5GPX got its name. But so the, the initial rule was it had to be uh, was it like a square photo where it was like 500PX? It has to be 500PX wide, wide, yeah. Um, the reason for that is I had a community right before that and uh, there was no rules like that. So people could post big photos and small photos. And back in the day, there was nothing that was pretty. So people... Um, there was, I mean, Facebook was not launched by that time. So there was no Facebook, there was no Flickr, there was no Instagram, of course, there was like nothing. And so the only place were like those communities and the community that I created before that was the first photography community, uh, on Life journal. And people were posting all kinds of, um, I'll be honest, like all, all kinds of crap, uh, small photos that are as big as a post stamp or photos that are so large that the browser could not display them because there was no way to like shrink it and present it correctly. So it was very bad user experience. Uh, but that was the norm. Again, that was 2003. And from that experience, uh, I decided that it's time to have some rules so that the experience of viewing would be a pleasurable one. It's a very smart decision that you mentioned of um, kind of limiting um, certain standards for quality because I can imagine uh, as a founder of someone who starts something new, the uh, thing that they want is more users, more people to upload photos, but that doesn't always mean quality. And did you see because of those restrictions, the quality of photos getting better? For sure. And standards are constantly rising. So even for people who let's say, got accepted in 2004, uh, the same photo would be rejected a year later because you constantly want to improve, you know, like you don't want to uh, stay on, uh, stay the same. And that, that's what's happening. Like if, if I visit any photography-related website, the, uh, the photography is extremely beautiful. You know, people know how to make it like very pretty, and a lot more people like it, it's incredible to imagine that uh, what we're seeing as a normal photo today would be a masterpiece uh, on the internet, let's say 15 years ago. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. As technology kind of upgrades, it gives people uh, more opportunity to like improve themselves as the standard is rising. Uh, I find it interesting you mentioned that um, you started 500px. Um, this is before like social networking invaded all of our lives where we can um, kind of share everything whenever and wherever. And first 500px started as sort of like a community. And nowadays community seems to be one of the most important parts in every company's marketing efforts is to build more community or um, what kind of community actions can we do? So how did you know back then, if you did at all, um, like how big of a role community would play? Well, well that's, that's right. Um, I think that community is a, a cornerstone of a lot of things that are happening with the Internet, uh, or not just the Internet, just like industry in general. Um, and at first, many would not have believed that you can build anything on the community. Uh, there is hundreds of people hundreds of rejections from investors, from friends and professionals who would be saying like, this is the stupidest idea ever. Um, and maybe the time it was, <laughs> I'm not saying that it wasn't, uh, but what's happening now is that uh, there is a relationship 
management, so to say. Uh, we know that uh, people want to stay loyal. People want to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. Uh, whether, you know, people go to church for a specific reason. Um, people go to community gatherings because they want to feel connected. Uh, people are part of different clubs uh, for the same reason. And so um, uh, same same was happening on the internet in the early days, but there was no way to monetize or make it into business. But now we just have communities that are a lot more global. So you might be uh, an Apple fan, and that's a giant community of like a billion people. But then there's another community that is like Samsung fans of uh, Galaxy smartphones. And then you're starting like, well, that's not my community, that's another community. Um, but as you dig a little bit and kind of like focus on smaller ones, there are communities of people who are on, you know, Etsy or on Pexels. And um, it's something that connects them, something where they can interact with people that understand the same, uh, uh, that have the same struggles, that have the same challenges. And uh, hopefully through understanding of this, it is possible for a company to communicate uh, and connect them together. I think that's uh, that's why. And if if companies are doing a good enough job, then people will stay loyal to those brands over the years, uh, even in good times or bad times like uh, we're experiencing right now. And I remember when I was in uh, my first year university, when I start, first started picking up a camera, uh, the first place I thought of uploading it was 500px. That's what my cousin told me, and um, he was a huge fan of it, and he was a hobbyist, and it was a pretty big um, platform in Asia. So from your experience with working, I guess, over time uh, with so many millions of people in different communities around the world, either virtually or in person, why do you think community is such an important part um, of the creative field specifically? Well, in, in the creative field, it's uh, very competitive as well. So <laughs> communities can be uh, a place of gathering and a place of where you get to know more people, but it's also very competitive, especially if you're dealing with other freelance photographers or just kind of photography field um, or any other creative field. So uh, there's also a lot of rivalry uh, that I experienced over the years. Somebody hates <laughs> this guy or that person. And so it goes back and forth. Uh, but for me, it was like, look, we all play in the same playground. Even if we don't like someone, uh, we still want to let them play because, well, first of all, it's a nice thing to do. Uh, and second of all, uh, there is kind of like a path for everyone. So if somebody wants to follow in other people's foot, foot, uh, footsteps and, and copy their style, for example, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with that because that person that's leading will probably evolve their style over time. Um, so I know, like for me, that was part of my learning experience. I would find a photo that I personally really like and try to copy that. Uh, if, if it requires a credit to, to that, um, you know, to that person for inspiration, I would give that credit. Um, but that's, that's part of the path as I see for creative industries and for, uh, you know, photography in particular, I think the, um, I think that maybe I'm mistaken, but most photographers that I dealt with, they are likely to be introverts uh, as myself. Maybe it's just me, uh, you know, <laughs> talking to other people like that. But a lot of photographers are just uh, by themselves a lot of the time, especially landscapes or street photographers that they, they just uh, uh, go by themselves and take photos. And so having a community or having a place to connect or find new people um, is is a nice little perk. When you started the community at 500px, did it start as, I guess there was the online aspect of it, and um, when did you decide to kind of move it locally or move it to where um, people can interact with each other face-to-face? -face? Well, we started pretty early on, um, and the first thing what happened when um, – me and my co-founder decided to go and do this as 
a real thing. Like as a, uh, I was doing it part time before, and in thousand uh, late thousand eight, early thousand nine, we decided to focus on that a lot more. So we actually gathered, um, I forgot how many, like six or seven people in one of our apartments, and we basically brainstormed for the weekend. Um, you know, brought some donuts, brought some coffee. Uh, it's funny because I ended up uh, dating one of the people that was <laughs> on that uh, in that meeting. I didn't know that person before, and uh, we ended up dating for a few years. Uh, so there's, you know, there's good things that that happened <laughs> throughout that time. And soon after, we started doing a fun thing that we called models versus photographers. Uh, don't Google that. If you find something, it it's, uh, looks very silly right now. But back in the day, we would gather on the weekend. We would invite um, like amateur models, anybody who wants to model, guys and girls, and amateur photographers, people like us. And basically would provide them with coffee and some snacks and just have a gathering. And that was fun. You know, it, it took a bit of time to organize, uh, took a bit of money, but it was like very, very chill and fun experience. And so we had, uh, we ran something like eight or nine of those in, in the first few years. So that led to ideas like photo walks, for example, that we started doing later on and a bunch of other activities uh, that we were doing throughout the years. Well, was there a significant event or a time where you knew that this is something you wanted to work on long-term rather than uh, just a passion project? Uh, yeah. What happened is I was um, working on a startup. And uh, actually, like after I graduated, I went to Moscow for quite a bit, for a few months. And because I was running out of money, decided to uh, start working uh, at a company. And what happened, it was uh, a great but a terrible experience at the same time. So I learned a lot. And it ended up in the whole team being fired the day after we delivered the project. Uh, because it was run by one of the uh, rich... Russian oligarchs that had a pet project. Um, and uh, I was in charge of making that pet project a reality. Um, it's, uh, I would say it's, it's a useful experience, but it, it was pretty traumatic for me. <laughs> so after that, I told myself, I will not do this again, and I will go and start my own thing. And so I came back home to Toronto and a similar story happened with my friend. He was going through similar stuff with his work. And so we happened to be at the same time in Toronto and decided to take it as basically as a full-time gig and just start working on that. And I think the timing was right. The, um, uh, that was actually the, uh, during the last financial crisis, early 2009. Um, and, and so the timing was right where Maybe there was not a lot of other options to go to. So we were just uh, hanging out at his apartment, my apartment, uh, Starbucks uh, at the time. And, you know, that was a long time ago. Uh, uh, so much so that Starbucks had a Wi-Fi, but it wasn't free. You had to pay for that. Then as soon as you start working... Uh, they made it free, but only if you have a Starbucks card and only if you had the minimum of $5 on the card. So, uh, and it would give you two hours of Wi-Fi a day. So we had to get several cards, uh, keep $5 balance on that so we can get online for like four hours or six hours instead of just two hours. Um, some, some silly things that we had to go through. Yeah, that's fu that's funny. It's probably good marketing on Starbucks, and at the time they were probably one of the few people who were able to kind of monetize off Wi-Fi as it was starting to get more popular. That was one of the books I've always wanted to read. Um, Howard Schultz's book mm. on Starbucks, so I haven't gotten to there yet. Mm. So yeah, I think it's interesting that you also mentioned um, of how this was during the financial crisis in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, and it's a 
kind of a big and scary change to going, first of all, from working at like, um, like a regular job and I'm having, uh, like a regular economy to all of a sudden the world seems like it's crashing and start deciding to start a new venture. And I think it's really inspiring, especially during uh, these times now when things are changing and no one really knows what's going on. But um, it's inspiring for people to understand that, oh, like you can uh, kind of get creative during this time and um, maybe find some opportunity there. Well, for sure. Uh, you know, the way I think of that, actually being stuck at home for a long time, uh, is that if you have a place to crash, uh, then all you need is a human being. Uh, I'm not talking about that it's very nutritional. Is just, let's say, 2,000 calories. You can get 1,000 calories very cheaply in probably under $2 uh, if you're creative or just go for like instant noodles and stuff. Um, so the ability to get work done uh, I mean, yeah, of course, you need to have a laptop, you need to have some uh, internet connection, place to crash, maybe someone's couch. So I'm not saying that it's easy, but I'm saying that it doesn't require too much investment if you're willing to make a sacrifice. And uh, for me, back in the day, uh, again, I was pretty young, so making those sacrifices was a lot easier. So... Um, you know, for us, we we used to forego um, weekends. We would just work on on weekends. We would forego parties. Uh, we would forego um, whatever people used to do, like going to clubs or going to you know hangout places. And we would just be at home, uh, either apartment or Starbucks coding. Um, and that uh, you know that that is what leads to results. And um, it also takes time, you know, like it doesn't like if you, you need to spend months and months and months of work to get something done. Um, and for us, it took about like four or five months to get Fire PX to the basic stage where we rebuild everything that was happening on the live journal platform and then on a very simple website and moved it to a modern website. And even after five or six months, it was full of bugs. So any decent amount of development actually takes a lot of time. So uh, the work is never done. <laughs> and since you started this so young, um, I guess you were at a time where it was like you just graduated from college and there's all this time for like exploring new things and traveling. And, but instead you kind of chose to put your head down and uh, work on your startup. And I think a lot of young people probably have that devil and angel where it's like, yes, I want to work something at the same time. Do I want to get like, give up my youth? How did you balance that and decide that, Oh, I wanted to kind of work hard, put my head down and pursue this passion. I don't know. <laughs> I think for me, uh, I just didn't know what else to do. You know, it's something you wake up and you just know that this is what you need to do because there is nothing else that you can do. And that was my thing. It's just like once, it, I, I think the big, the big um, misconception is that you have to work on something that's cool. And, uh, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of new cool things, but actually you have to have uh, enough uh, passion in the whole industry to keep on going in the good days and bad days. And back in foreign pegs days or currently in Skyrim days, there are some days that are amazing and some days that are not amazing. that are just like pretty, you know, draining. And what what I didn't know back then and what I know now is that uh, it's normal to have both. It's a roller coaster. Any startup goes through those stages. Um, and so if it's a bad day, well, just, you know, take a break, take it easy. Uh, I learn not to push through if it's, if nothing is working, I'm just like, you know what, I'll take a break. I'll come back to this tomorrow. And if something is working and you feel very energetic and excited, then you just go work extra two hours because I feel like that's the right wave and people respond and things are happening. So uh, sometimes it stretches off like 14 or 16 hours of work. And sometimes it's uh, a stretch of an hour or two. And then you realize like it's not working out. I'll go for a long walk instead. 
And understanding that you have to have enough uh, patience, it's like a marathon. So you have to have enough resilience to go through months and years of uh, work at a normal pace in order to get where, where you need to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love how you mentioned about the good days and the bad days. I just remember you saying to me after one of our coffee meetings to like appreciate the slow days and working remotely with not really, I guess you had your team virtually, but you don't have that like water cooler talk or like nudge someone beside you and just chat to them. Well, yeah, of course, after a period of slow days, you'll have a days where you have to do everything at once. And I know that there will be days like this. So whenever there's a slow day, I'll just organize my stuff or I'll go for a walk or I'll do something else because I know that tomorrow might be completely different and I'll have to do 20 different tasks. So uh, that's my way of pacing myself so that throughout the week or throughout the month or year, I have enough energy to go on. Uh, And that's most important. It's it's how you um, optimize your time and your workload because – you know, work never ends. You cannot say like, okay, everything is done. Nothing else. Cause there is something else will, that, that will, uh, that will appear. So, yeah. There's no doubt that like the life of a startup has tumultuous times where it's good and bad. And do you have any specific either rituals or like habits that you have that kind of mean helps you maintain your sanity and balance during these ups and downs? Well, I, uh, some meditation is good. Uh, but frankly, it's just not taking it too seriously is probably the best advice that I can I can give because, um, you know, in the early days of PX, there were literally hundreds of people that were saying that it's a stupid idea. Then in the later y- years, there were hundreds of people that were saying, like, why do we need something else when there's Flickr, for example? Um, then it was the same people that were saying, like, why do we need this when we have Instagram? Well, look, there's different platforms for everyone. There's mm-hmm. always uh, more than one. You know, we cannot be uh, like there's Farnet PX and nobody else. It's not the world that we live in. There's abundance of choice. And for us, uh, some things were more important than for others. Like we really cared about design. We really cared about simplicity and user experience. And so we took pride in making this the best experience we can get. And for others, um, you know, maybe getting to billion users is what's uh, been important. So they were focusing on other things. Um, And, you know, we make our own choices and we hope that what we do will help the community to get uh, their work done the way they, they want it. This is something that you worked on uh, for a long time, and it was something you created. Anything over 10 years, it's hard to think about being able to commit for something for that long. What kept you going that whole time? Hopefully serving the community. (laughs) Uh, Frankly, in the last couple of years in my role, I was mostly responsible for um, community management and uh, what we internally called like evangelism. Uh, again, in air quotes, because um, doing things like photo walks and doing things like um, interaction with community and understanding their needs and their uh, grievances and how we can fix it for them. Uh, as community becomes larger, there's a lot of groups that have very specific needs. So serving those and understanding how we can best build for them, uh, that was something that I was doing in the last couple of years before I left. Um, And uh, this is actually the same principle that when I was talking to uh, Skylab team, um, that was the main point for me, is that uh, I would join the team at Skylab if I could get a freedom to actually work with the community. And we've done a lot of community work at at Skylab over the uh, last couple of years, but that's something that's important. It, it doesn't have to be something that I focus on every day, but it's something that's always on my mind when um, kind of like looking at a product through the prism of a community and stakeholders. After working on 500px for so long, how did you decide when it was the right time to move on for something that you started and worked on for so long? Excellent question. Um, <laughs> I think uh, at 
you know, the team was at a time uh, getting bigger and bigger. And what I realized that for startups, I'm best suited for the early stage, uh, for a stage when it's just growing, when there's new procedures, when there is uh, needs to be uh, like management in place and, and just kind of like those specific things uh, just like set up for the very first time. So that was something that was actually very exciting. We went through a lot of uh, internal crises at FNPX. And one day when we were going through a terrible uh, PR crisis, I realized that that's when I felt most alive, <laughs> which is really, really silly because if, if everything is going smooth and everything is fine, then I feel uh, bored, I guess. So going through um, moments of um, that required a lot of uh, attention and quick decision-making, that's where I felt most uh, at home, basically. And after a while, the team was already set. You know, there's like product managers and marketing managers and community managers. And uh, the interaction became just kind of like between managers and executives. And I wouldn't like, it's just a little bit different. So at that time it felt, you know, how about I take some time off and think what's, uh, what's important to me. Um, and yeah, so not an easy decision to, to, to make, uh, mm-hmm. and not something that I took lightly, uh, but yeah, it's not, I mean, it's done. <laughs> and after you moved on from 500px, did you go directly to working with Skylum, or did you take some uh, time off in between? I took two years off. Um, I went traveling for about half a year. Um, I uh, booked a one-way ticket to Shanghai, <laughs> actually. And, uh, you know, there's many reasons to do that, but our investor, our last investors were from China. And through them, I went to Hong Kong, uh, Shanghai, Beijing. And in Shanghai, I, I saw the bond, like all of this, uh, um, all of the skyscrapers. And I told myself, it seems like this is where the future lies. Uh, I didn't know what it means specifically for myself, but I knew that I need to come back there. And so I got my one-way ticket to Shanghai and just left. <laughs> and after two weeks, I realized that I cannot be in Shanghai for longer and left Shanghai after that. Where in this phase did you end up talking to Skylum and decided to join their team? Yeah, I was helping a few startups in between. So frankly, while traveling for about uh, that half a year, uh, and spending over three years in Asia in total, um, I was still kind of like what kept me going is interaction with all the startups. So I became uh, a chapter director of um, Startup Grind in Taipei. I was at different giving talks in places like uh, uh, Hanoi. Was it Hanoi or Ho Chi Minh? Good question. I think in Hanoi. Um, and a few other places across Asia I was doing talks in Hong Kong. Um, and that was very exciting for me. You know, I was attending other people's talks in Jakarta or in Bali, uh, all over the, basically all over those countries, uh, talking to startups, learning more things, uh, it kind of like getting all this, like sucking all this knowledge uh, for myself and sharing it on blogs, sharing it with uh, friends and people that I know. And over those ye- kind of like couple of years, I've been consulting a few companies here and there. Uh, some of them were in Taipei, some of them were in China and Hong Kong and other places. And over time, I got a, a contact from uh, my current boss from CEO of Skylum, and he wanted to talk to me because I was uh, sharing a lot of news from uh, like living in Taipei in Taiwan and sharing a lot of those uh, news and, and stories that I would hear and I would write an article. And so uh, at that time, Skylum was going through a massive transformation, uh, changing the name, focusing on a different set of products. Uh, finding its own niche with Luminar, uh, 
because before there was many different products that the uh, company was doing. And at the time, it was the size that allowed Skylum to start looking at other markets, uh, such as Asia is, is one of them. And so we started that conversation. And uh, it took a few months to get to an understanding what and how we want to do. And we just started working um, first part-time and then full-time. And it took me to a lot of places. Uh, we went from uh, Taipei to opening an office in Tokyo and um, like building our business in Japan. Um, and at that time, it's surprising that it grew 100 times in those two years. Um, pretty dramatic uh, growth. And I realized that like once you focus on something, it it, it grows, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it seems like you spent a fair amount of time um, in Asia, both for your personal reasons, but also for work. What was your biggest learnings from working in the market there and how it differs from North America? Well, what I learned is that for people who treat it as one single continent, um, as Asia, are very mistaken. And there are so many cultural differences, not only between uh, different countries, like Japan is very different from China, but also between uh, different territories, like China is very different from Hong Kong. And of course, Hong Kong people will call themselves differently and uh, culture and language would be different. Um, and that understanding and trying to get uh, deep into, um, and again, that's a perspective of an outsider, trying to understand how it can be applied to startups and to businesses. Uh, like seeing those apps where, um, you know, like we don't have those apps in Canada or United States, like WeChat in China, for example, that just encompasses every single feature you can think of or mm -hmm. fun things like Grab in Indonesia or Singapore, where you can ask for MSUs to come over to your villa. Um, <laughs> or, like or, or all of these things are so different that uh, whether it relates to payment or services, that it's really fascinating to try to learn how and why it came to be and how and why um, Western like apps and Western businesses did not uh, adopt any of those innovations. And like for some things we're stuck way in the past and for some things we're stuck in between and some things we're doing better than uh, other countries. And, um, you know, like payment, for example, uh, Japan is very cash driven. You still get like cash is still uh, a massive part of all the payments. But in China, it's all uh, WeChat Pay and Alipay that took over. And those countries seem to be pretty close uh, in technology advancement, at least today, but still so vastly different on a cultural level. And speaking on the topic of learning, um, I read that you are an avid language learner. And how many languages do you like speak and know now? Well, I know some English. <laughs> There's one. Uh, Russian, uh, some, I would say like fourth or five, fifth grade Chinese, uh, obviously Mandarin, uh, some basic Japanese. And now I'm trying to teach myself Korean. Wow. And was this like a personal decision or was it something that you felt like you did just like for like business purposes? Uh, I started with Chinese as a personal thing. And uh, first had a few courses in Toronto before I left to Shanghai so that I could say at least Ni Hao when I arrived. Uh, but I realized that it wasn't enough. So I would be terribly lost and I wouldn't understand what was going on. So a year after that, I enrolled in university in Taipei for a six-month study. And that was an amazing time. I realized how much I missed the classroom because uh, all the decisions are made for you. So you just need to show up, do your work, and everything else is taken care of. And I missed the time. I realized how easy it is uh, for students to be in school. Uh, and how hard it is to be out of school and try to forge your own path and understand how the world works. 
Um, so yeah, being in school is actually really easy. So uh, <laughs> uh, it's going to be harder for those who graduate. My mom always said that too, and I was in school too, is to like appreciate your time you have here because it's only going to get harder and it's not until after, which I realized um, in hindsight that that was very correct. For sure. Yeah. And for other languages, Japanese was for business because uh, I was uh, stationed there and working out of Tokyo. So that was important to at least uh, my Japanese is terrible. So uh, it's enough to kind of like basically get by. Um, and I would love to learn it more. And Korean the same way. I think it's a, uh, it's kind of like a both a fun language to learn, but also something that is important for us as a business to start looking into South Korea as our next market. So, um, you know, my personal goals are often aligned with uh, business goals. Um, sometimes they're delayed a little bit and sometimes they're pretty well, um, you know, go step and step. Learning a language is not easy at any age um, perhaps like when you're between zero to five like that's when you pick up languages naturally um, so what do you recommend for people who kind of say they lack motivation to continue learning like even though everything is online these days and so accessible I find even for myself like, I was like oh, I'm going to sit down and uh, do a coding course but um, kind of having the person like I guess like stamina to continue learning I think for me uh, it's important to make an investment in um, basically like put the money down. And what I did the very first time, I bought a ticket to Shanghai and I applied to, I think it was a couple of months of courses in Toronto uh, of Chinese, like very basic. And those two decisions like, okay, there's no turning back. I got a ticket and I need to know at least a few phrases. And I'll just go with that. So that was the first thing. Um, and the same with school a year later is, you know, paying your dues <laughs> and realizing that now you're in a class for three months is something uh, that is very, I mean, like that's how people go to the gym, right? Like once you pay, uh, you better go because <laughs> you paid your money. Uh, and if it's if it's not like that, it's really hard to to be motivated. I think, especially I mean, uh, for people like me, uh, it's nice to know that you make this commitment. So, if you want to learn the language, uh, as soon as uh, you know, stay at home time is over, book a ticket to some place where you can practice this language and apply to courses. Maybe that's going to be the good decision. Yeah, and I guess that's the pros and cons of everything being so accessible nowadays. Like, even though there is like, oh, all these like free courses that you can take um, because you don't like pay like tuition or something as you would in traditional school. Yeah, like that commitment to stay there and kind of continue is harder than if you made some sort of sacrifice. Well, yeah, and it could be just time sacrifice. So putting this on your calendar and treating that as work. Uh, or even paying money to yourself, like getting a jar and just like putting 20 bucks in it for every every hour that you take uh, so that you can spend it on something else. It's a free course, but it, you still need this commitment. So um, for personal things like this, I put them on my calendar because then if they don't exist in my calendar, I totally forget about them. And I wanted to uh, kind of circle everything back to uh, talking about, I guess, going back to photos and the concept of reality and how that's changed for with technology. Uh, so I personally tried and downloaded Luminar 4, and um, I was so surprised at how accurate the AI is. Like before, people would take an hour or something to like replace a sky, for example, and then make sure everything looks the same rather than just like a cut and paste of something. Uh, so as technology advances, it's easier than ever to um, manipulate quote unquote reality. Um, not that it's like a, a objectively good thing or a bad thing. Um, like in one of the other interviews we did with one of our heroes, uh, Benjamin Suter, he mentioned that um, when he edits, he edits to the way that a photo uh, reflects how he feels rather than uh, what it actually was. Do you think in the future that reality or having something that's real would still be relevant? Well, for that question, so first of all, we don't even see color as humans. There is specific wave, uh, light wave that hits our eyes, 
and that wave is transformed in our brain into colors and shapes. <laughs> so everything we see is actually not really real. We don't, we don't even know if it's real or not. It's just how brain uh, chooses to interpret that, um, which is already a funny thing. So after that, you realize that everything we take on a camera uh, and when we like open our, uh, uh, turn the camera on and take a photo, the camera doesn't see color. It uh, acts the same way as the human eye. It you know basically reacts to different wavelength and records that as intensity. So everything is completely constructed for our uh, convenience. So um, once you kind of like know this and you can embrace this, the reality itself is a very strange thing. Um, and so I think uh, giving people tools to express themselves is basically what matters. Uh, one thing that I'm reminded, there is uh, a bunch of uh, famous painters um, and artists, and the name escapes me, but that person was painting a lot of uh, blue paintings. He actually had a blue period. I think it might be Picasso. I'm really bad at, at that. But basically what was happening is that at that time, blue paint was on sale. <laughs> it was easier to buy and it was cheaper uh, to make so that artists that were starving, that didn't have a lot of cash, they were actually painting blue because it was cheaper. So, but now it's regarded as a blue period because you know it has some transformative properties and that's how people uh, look at the artists. Um, but reality is uh, sometimes a bit, you know, limited as to what we have. Uh, same as to other colors in different time periods. Some were cheaper to obtain, some were harder to obtain. Um, same with uh, things like sky replacement. Uh, let's say 10 years ago, taking photos and making them pretty was super hard. It was uh, an effort that you have to know so many different um, uh, things and the information on the internet was not as accessible as it is today. Uh, and a hundred years ago, you have to be not just the photographer uh, in air quotes, but also a chemist, uh, a mathematician, and a physicist. So you have to know all of those things to just make a photo. So we have it a little bit easier right now. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny to see. Um... Like it's interesting to see like the the dichotomy of like real versus like authenticity versus AI now. Like there's Instagram who there's rumors of them coming with a feature that'll tag stuff that's like this is photoshopped or this is retouched. Whereas there's also this other race where it's like who can come up with the best um, technology to create like artificial reality as well. I guess the common theme here is that technology is always changing um, as with society. So. On a final note, what do you think is the more, most important skill that creatives can have moving and navigating into the future? Well, I think most important is creativity. Uh, that's, that's the defining principle. There are some people, uh, there's a couple of artists actually that are using the quarantine time, staying at home to make photo sessions through Zoom and through FaceTime and seeing those, mm -hmm. that's what for me defines uh, uh, the creative spirit. You know, that is something where the technology or limitations of technology or being separated from someone does not mean that you should stop creating. And so using those methods to create, that's really cool. That is something that always impresses me that mm -hmm. there's people who use uh, all of those limitations and go through all of those hurdles uh, and create something cool and fun. Uh, that's one of the things. The other thing is actually pretty sobering. And, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Instagrammers or creators these days, they aim to have instant uh, recognition. They post and they expect to become um, you know, uh, famous. And there is so many different artists 
that became famous only after they passed away. <laughs> There's so many, uh, even photographers mm-hmm. like Diane Ar- uh, Arbus, forgot her name, that became um, famous yeah. um, mm-hmm. after her death. So it's uh, important to know that, um, y- you know, if you're creating for the crowd, you will be creating for the like most common uh, human that is out there. There is like millions of likes and all of this. So uh, I wouldn't want uh, creators to go for that because yes, there is money in this, but you wouldn't be pushing the art further. So going and saying, I will do this for myself or I'll do this because that's the way I feel and not caring about specific likes or clicks or all of that is important as the way for artists to become, uh, to push their art uh, forward and their craft uh, further into the areas that have not been explored. I love how you mentioned like limitations inspire creativity. So for those of us who are inside and feeling like, oh, we are cut off from our creative passion of going out and taking photos and traveling and taking photos inspiring to know that oh this limitation is I'm staying inside and what can come out of that is these cool things like webcam shoots do you think you would ever do a web like try doing a webcam shoot I'm thinking about that but I'm but I'm very jealous of uh, those artists because I should have all the tools I mean we all have right but it is something that separates them and me and probably that's why i do it as a hobby and they are uh you know true artists in the full sense of that word so well thank you so much for your time and sharing all of your um, insights through your path from uh, being a photographer yourself to starting 500px to now working at skylum so for those of you who are interested to uh, read more about you where can we find you online uh, good question well 500px is a good place and instagram is a good place uh it's eb25.4 on Instagram and slash Chibotarov on 4 Oh, Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me.